Welcome to Sky Women. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Moyers, a wife, mom, and board-certified OB-GYN. This is a place to educate, empower, and inspire. Join us each week as we share the power of women's stories. Real women, real stories, real inspiration. Put on your stretchy pants. Let's get going. Hello, welcome Sky community. It's your host, Dr. Carolyn Moyers. And I am so excited that you're here today. And I know that I say that every week, but thank you for showing up week after week. We have an exciting topic today. We're gonna talk about what sexual medicine really is. And I have with me my sister from another mister or how are you saying? (laughs) Not her other father, I don't know. Yeah, Samina Raman. She uh, is a fabulous board certified OB-GYN practicing in downtown Chicago in her own practice. She's a clinical assistant professor of OB-GYN with Northwestern, and she's a fellow of Ishwish. She's on the board of directors at Ishwish. And I saw uh, Samina giving a talk at Ishwish and went, she looks so familiar and realized, oh, she's gyno girl because <laughs> everybody buys their Instagram. <laughs> uh, so true. Yeah. yeah. So welcome, Samina. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm so excited to be here. And, you know, it's just been so fun getting to know you and everything, all the great things you're doing. So yeah, this is very exciting. And I think we're going to have a good show today. A good talk today. Yeah, absolutely. So Dr. Raman also is a North American Menopause Society member and you're NAM certified, right? You're a yep. provider yep. as well. Yep. Yeah. And part of the Pelvic Pain Society. So International Pelvic Pain Society. So you've got a lot going on. Your practice is specialized as well. You know, tell us a little bit about who you are, how you became gyno girl. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're going to talk about this shift from general OB-GYN into the specialized gin practice. Absolutely. Don't say gyne. Don't you you say gyne? Yes. 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 Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So I am practicing in downtown Chicago. Like you said, I have kind of been all over the country. I would like to say I grew up in in North Carolina and that's where I went to school. I did my undergraduate and, and med school down there and over at Duke and Chapel Hill, even though I bleed dark blue, even though we lost. <laughs> but then I did my training out in the University of Massachusetts and then I had worked extensively in academics right after graduating my OBGYN residency in mass. And I moved to California actually, because I wanted to get out of the cold. <laughs> yeah. but I, got an yeah. I got an opportunity to work at the University of Southern California where I was there for about four and a half years on their faculty as a generalist. And I taught and, you know, we were doing a lot of simulation work with the residents and it was great. And I did a lot of international work at that time. Like I was very involved in some of those and some international groups that would go abroad and do stuff. I was single at the time, you know, so it was like the right time and the right place to do it. Right. I was a fresh attending. So that was, that was fun and it was good. And it gave me like a broad spectrum of experience and, and working at Los Angeles, like at LA County, I did just tons and tons of surgery, just Lots of patients coming through really complex cases, uninsured patients. I worked with LA County Hospital. So that was a wonderful experience and it was great to get boarded through those cases. And then, you know, I met my husband (laughs) at an airport, actually. (laughs) I always joke. Yeah, we met at Chicago O'Hare. I had just taken my oral board exam in Dallas, actually. And then I was 
Yeah. And I was heading out to visit my brother and my niece's birthday and all that stuff. But I always say he's, you know, from the South. So I talked to everyone. So he's not the first guy I've met in the airport, but he was the last. <laughs> you know, like, I don't talk to anyone in airports now on my kids. I'm just like, go, go, well, go. And your um, husband is a surgeon as well, right? So like, well, what are the chances you're going to run into? Yeah. Well, he's a, he's an interventional pain doctor, but yeah, he, he's a okay. medical dude and he does all the, you know, which actually it works out well. We work together in our practice. I'll tell you how that evolved, but yeah, it was, it was interesting. And then, so I, I ended up moving to Chicago because, you know, he convinced me one day we'll move back to California. Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> 13 years later, I'm still here in Chicago, which I've grown to love, you know, especially in the summers. And I continued actually, when I moved to Chicago, I was strictly in academics for a while again. So I was with one of the hospitals at, at the University of Chicago. And then I started after my first baby, I started working at Northwestern as an OB hospitalist. And that's kind of what kicked my ass to go into private practice. Yeah, <laughs> because, yeah. Oh my God, we share similar paths. Right? I mean, oh my God. So I was a hospitalist and it was great. It was perfect. You know, you think it's a great life balance. And I think in some ways it was really good for the time. But, yeah. you know, once you do it for three or four years and you get stuck with a lot of night shifts, it kind of changes your perception. <laughs> you know, because work then becomes like clock in, clock out. And it becomes... After a while, it became unfulfilling for me, right? Because I was like shift work and it was like, yes. this is a job, not a career anymore to me. Like it was really one of these epiphany moments that I had when I had a really you know, rough night on my shift and I came home very upset. And you know how you are when you're tired and angry. And then my husband was like, I married such a sweet OBGYN and look what you're becoming. <laughs> oh my God. Have I heard those words? Oh my God. Yes. Oh my God. Right. Yes. And so I was like, well, what do you want? I mean, this is, I'm trying to do this so I could stay with my, you know, at that time I had, I had my second kid that hospital and, and, you know, they were small, you know, all under five years old. And I was like, what do you want? I mean, I, I, this is what I have to do for my children so that I can see them. You know, I'm working what two or three shifts a week, but that ends up being what 24 to 36 hours, you know, but you're home, you know, a lot more, it seems like. But when you're not and you're recovering from nights, it's never good. So he had just branched out in his, when my daughter was born. So she was like, I was actually pregnant. He's like, I'm going to start my own practice. And I'm like, are you, are you kidding me right now? (laughs) Starting your own practice means no revenue for a while, you know? Yeah. So he did that and it was okay. And we survived. And, you know, even though I didn't have uh, like hardly any maternity leave because I had to go right back to work. And then he was building a space because he was working in multiple centers, like renting out spaces from people. And they started building a space in downtown Chicago. And I wasn't even involved in the building process because I was so, you know, with my kids and work. And one day he goes, come look at the office I built. And I was like, okay, sure. I said, wow, this is a nice office. I mean, you're so lucky to be working here. Wow, this would be so much, so nice to work at, you know? And he goes, well, guess what? You need to start your own practice. And I'm like, ha, 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 ha. yeah, right. Like who learns how to start a practice in med school and residency? Nobody, right? You have no idea. In fact, especially when you work in academics, you think really the worst of private practice, right? Totally. Yeah. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, like the truth of the matter is in a lot of private practices, you get a lot of like extensive care that, you know, in a big hospital setting where I have to see 40 patients a day, I'm not going to get to spend that time with patients. Right. And that's, I think one of the biggest driving forces was when I was at, you know, either in working in the hospital or the previous practice, you know, the administrators kept telling me I had to see more and more patients and it was 
You're not an F. Right. It was never enough. And it was, it was exhausting. And you felt like you just weren't providing good care after a while. You're like, I can't even address all the issues that they're bringing to me. So, and that's unfortunately, I think what happens to a lot of patients when they go to busy OBGYN practices, Yeah, Um, the OB over, over, overcomes the GYN. Right. So and that's what happens. And, and that's why a lot of OBGYNs probably don't, you know, have the feeling that they can manage a lot of gyny stuff because they don't really even have the time to do it in their office, you know? Right, yeah. right. And I think, you know, abnormal bleeding, birth control issues, piece of cake, right. Right. bread and butter. Of course. But of when course. it gets into sexual medicine, pelvic pain, like, yes, it takes a lot more time right. and energy and, and menopause management, you know, just to really treat that well and kind of absolutely peel back the layers of the onion, right? Because you know the sexual desire in female is multifaceted, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So So that's what pushed me into the gyne world only. And what pushed me into sexual medicine and menopause was the fact that I had these patients and now I had time to listen to them. And some of them were like, I just remember like my first week I had a patient with like sexual pain and I was like, okay, well, I know vaginismus. <laughs> I know, you know, the basics that you learn in residency, but, you know, to really get to the crux of what's behind it, you have to either do a fellowship, which there are pretty much none for gynees. I mean, there are some for urologists and then, or you have to kind of like find a way to teach yourself. So I immersed myself in articles. I read so much sexual medicine reviews though that year and basically started going to tons and tons of conferences. I found out about Ishwish. I went to like- Well, con- let's tell everybody what Ishwish oh, is. Oh, sorry. Yeah. It's the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. And it was started in like 1997 or so. It was, it's been like what, it, it, was, it was started right after Viagra came out. If you want to know the stories, like basically started after Viagra came out and there was a push by women truly to Dr. Erwin Goldstein, who's like the godfather of Ishwish. Mm -hmm. And basically it started at that point with women saying, hey, what about me? You guys came up with Viagra, but what about us? And so that's kind of how it evolved from there. But anyway, so that's this the big organization. They do all the research. They do all I mean, it's an incredibly underfunded area of medicine, incredibly underfunded. It's not, you know, given enough credence to, for the most part. And it's, you know, it's a big quality of life issue for so many patients. And I always tell patients, I always tell people when they ask me, like, you know, why I gave up certain aspects of OB and gyne that now I used to, you know, treat life-threatening conditions. And now I treat conditions that encourage good quality of life for patients, you know, so it was just equally as important in my eyes, you know, and to be able to spend that time with them. But that's what, what I ended up doing. I fell into Ishwish and then the same thing happened with menopause. We got such, you know, crappy training in menopause when I was a resident and, and uh, in medical school, whatever the case may be. And so I delved into North American Menopause Society. I read articles, I studied, I became certified. I think my first two years in practice, I went to like 10 conferences, you know, or educational meetings. Okay. And it was really great. And that's how I delved into it. And then every year you learn more things and every year there's more stuff to be taught. So I think that, that, that happened for me, you know, like seven, eight years ago now. So it was, it was great. And that's how, and then, you know, word of mouth. And, you know, I started doing Instagram because, you know, as a private practice owner, you kind of have to be, you got to be present on social media. Initially I was going to do just personal stuff. And then I was like, no, I got to do professional stuff. And so I came up with the, (laughs) the gyno girl thing because, 
And when I was a resident, I used to watch Scrubs and I thought it was hilarious how they would talk about talk about gynecologists as like the sorority of girls. And they're all, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were always dressed up with the heels and the yeah. hair and makeup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was hilarious. I call myself gyno girl, but then I kind of, I reappropriated the term because as I became, you know, more involved in these subspecialties and like just being more active and outspoken in areas of bias in medicine or, you know, cultural biases that come up in medicine, which I've faced and my patients have faced, I became gyno girl as a superhero where I'm like the protector, <laughs> the protector of the pelvis and breaking barriers in sexual medicine. So that became sort of like me as the gyno girl superhero, as opposed to gyno girl. I love it. I love it. So you're gyno girl on Instagram and you have a YouTube channel. Yes. Yes. Yep. Gyno girl. And I've, I've, I've been slacking lately, but I'm going to get back into okay. it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you're a busy mom of three. Yes. Uh, the ebb yes. and flow of life, like it's going to, it's going to have different seasons. So we get that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, yeah. Well, I want to transition here because we, we already know how fabulous you are. And I <laughs> wanted to give our listeners some real take home because we've had a couple of sex therapists on and sure. talked a lot about the you know, interpersonal relationships, maybe some of the physiologic, psychological factors that contribute to female sexual response. Yes. But specifically, I want to talk about when we can diagnose hypoactive sexual desire disorder, because so many women complain of a decrease in sexual function. And when I was reading a recent study, I saw, um, you know, how just reiterating that women, you know, will get in situations where they're avoiding sex, right? Because and it, this is creating personal distress. So I think it's important for us to recognize that it is more common than you think that you're not alone. We've seen it, you know, as high as, you know, I mean, how do you truly estimate this in our population, right? Because it's probably right. it's not important, right. but, you know, somewhere around 28% of women worldwide. But Let's define hypoactive sexual desire disorder is a common female sexual dysfunction defined by the International Society of the Study of Women's Sexual Health, that's Ishwish that we were talking about, as a lack of motivation for sexual activity, either in spontaneous desire, those thoughts or fantasies, or a reduced or absent responsive desire to erotic cues or stimulation or inability to maintain desire or interest through sexual activity or the loss of desire to initiate or participate in sexual activities that includes avoiding situations that could lead to sexual activity. And it cannot be that it's secondary to a sexual pain disorder. So you're not avoiding it because it's painful or it hurts. And not only do you have to, you know, not have that responsive or spontaneous desire, it also has to create personal distress, right? Because some people are like, I don't care if I ever have sex again. Right. Absolutely. And that's what I talk to patients about all the time is like, they'll complain initially about low libido. And, you know, that's the first question I usually talk to them. I'm like, well, how is it bothering you? Like, how do you feel about it? Are you frustrated by it? You know, there's some questions, some questionnaires we can ask, but you know, sometimes you're right. You're like, no, I don't care. And I'm like, well, does it, is it causing problems in your relationship? There has to be a reason you brought it up, you know? And that's a lot of times that's when it comes up. Like, okay, I think my husband might just like divorce me or something if I don't have sex with him more. And it's not him, it's me. I know it. And da, da, da. So we talk about it, you know, like we talk about how in sexual medicine, we approach things through a biopsychosocial model and like not every woman is not going to want to have to do it all the time. And it's, Fine. There, there are times in your life where, you know, you're 
tired and fatigued and postpartum and whatever, and their conditions that affect it. But there's definitely a biological component. We know that there are neurotransmitters and hormones involved. So we have to address all of that. And I think that patients get reassured to hear that, you know, that like, okay, I'm not alone. And you know, no one expects you even after treatment to be like a nymphomaniac, you know, you just want to get to like a point where we're not cre- creating hypersexual <laughs> females. So let's talk about our new options. And I say new, but you know, I want to say that Addie was approved in what, 2015, maybe yeah, it's been a while, yeah. in 2019. So they've been around for a little bit. Mm-hmm. So why don't you talk to us kind of about how you use these and kind of how these act? Because I think some people may be nervous, like the Addy, you, it's a pill that you take daily and it acts on inhibition, right? Whereas Bilisi is just as needed and it's an injection, like a sub-Q injection, and you take it up to eight times per month. Right. Exactly. So, and that's exactly it. So when we talk about sort of when when we're, when we're dealing with the treatments, obviously we look at, you know, all sorts of things before we talk about the actual medication, we look at their medical history. Are you on SSRIs? Are you on other medications that we know will diminish your desire? You know, are you in a safe relationship? Is this happening? But so we, we do all that stuff, obviously, I mean, you know, roll out the pain factors that may be involved, but specifically when it comes to, you know, in a, you know, I always tell people that you know, the, the brain is a sexual organ, right? Like we can get yes. into two modes. We can get the inhibition or excitation mode. And there are definitely neurotransmitters and hormones out there that will put us into excitation mode. So like your dopamines, your oxytocins, your norepinephrine, And then you have on the opposite, you know, the things that put us into, or, and, and also your melanocortins and all of that good stuff. And then you have stuff on the other end of things, like other neurotransmitters, like your serotonin, which obviously antidepressants increase your serotonin. So that's why they can mess with your, with your, they create more inhibition than, than excitation. And then, you know, you have things like, you know, opioids or, or other hormones and neurotransmitters that will diminish that, right? So that inhibit your sexual desire. So ADE works to kind of like increase, you know, your your norepinephrine and decrease your serotonin levels, right? I think it's because it's centrally acting. All all yeah. these all these medications are central. Yeah. Yes. And then all these medications are, are, you know, centrally acting. So um, meaning that they trigger something in your brain. And with ADE, it kind of has to work over time. So that's not kind of sometimes the hard selling for a lot of patients, I think, is that you have to take it nightly. I always say, take it right before you jump into bed, go to right before you're about to go to sleep, because it can cause, you know, um, somnolence for, for you to feel sleepy, but you have to take it every day for at least two months to kind of see whether or not you're improving your sexual encounters and, and desire. And actually I think it works across the board. Like it does increase desire. It also improves arousal in some studies and some people will see even more potent orgasms across the board. So it's total sexually satisfying experiences. But I, you know, I think that's what the important factor is, 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 and, and I think there's like what 60% of, of women or people with uteruses will respond to it. So it's one of these things where, you know, you might fall into that non-responding category. And so after two months of being on it, it's, it may not work out for you. But if you're in that 60% that respond, people love it. I mean, the side effects, you know, sometimes the, the somnolence, if you take it right as you're getting into bed, it sometimes helps people sleep better. And then there's like this potential weight issue, like reduction of weight or, or suppression of appetite kind of thing. So I think that's always something that people like. But so- yeah. No, I'm yeah, I think that it's a great option. And for some people, 
I think whenever they have something that they take daily, it's almost easier because they're just in the routine. Right. Oh yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about Vilesi a little bit. It increases dopamine. It increases the excitatory response. And like we said before, it's that simultaneous injection. So it looks like a little EpiPen. It's the tiniest little needle and you inject it an hour before sexual activity, right? Exactly. Like your little blue pill, but it's not a pill. Yeah. And it's like a very, like you're right, very tiny needle. It's supposed to like, you know, we have these, like what uh, improving your dopamine through, I think the melanocortins or something. So right. I guess it's just a matter of, you know, if you do it like an hour before you might want to have sex or 45 minutes before you want to have sex, you will hopefully get through any side effects you might have. Right. I think some of the problems that some of my patients have had was a potential side effects, the, the nausea, the headaches, you know, which might have you seen that that's only with the first dose. I've heard that the nausea was yeah. worse with the first dose. Yeah. It hasn't been, if you can get past it, like some patients just are done after one, but I always encourage them to try to, you know, get through the first one or two doses so they can hopefully subside some of those. And then, it, you know, it has, if, if you take it, sometimes people even take it at night and then, you know, hope for like morning intercourse. Cause you know, I think in, in terms of the biochemistry of it, it lasts, you know, that long potentially. And it's a little auto injector. You're right. It's like a little EpiPen right underneath the subcutaneous space. So it is an as needed thing. I mean, and I'm not opposed to doing both of them. Like I don't, sometimes I'm like, we don't have to choose. We can do both at the same time because they work differently, right? And they're working in different pathways and you might just get that much more pleasure out of it. Some people want to try one and then the other, but the people that are really kind of desperate will will actually just say, okay, give me both of them. Let's see what happens. So in those circumstances, because I've never used them uh, consecutively in those circumstances, how do you know which one worked? I mean, I guess that's the issue, right? But I think if if you don't expect the Addy, if you're using the Addy in the first month and someone finds that the Vilesi is helping out, you wouldn't expect it to to work in terms of uh, the, the Vilesi would be the one that you would think works, right? Because we don't see an effect with Addy okay. for the okay. first month. So I guess that would be when they saw like a more of an effect or, you know, if yeah. after two months they were using the Vilesi and the Addy, they saw even more improvement, you know, that kind of thing. That's kind of what we look at. So I want to talk about why this is so novel and so exciting because these drugs are acting, when we say they're acting centrally, they're acting on our brain and our response. They've actually done MRIs Mm -hmm. while, you know, they're doing, you know, they've done MRIs to look at the brain activity in response to erotic material, et cetera, to kind of assess what's going on. This is really big because we always talk about hormones and our ovarian steroids, essentially, being like the prime excitatory sexual systems, right? Like, but we know that our estrogen and testosterone levels are going to drop. Well, our estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone levels are going to drop as we enter into menopause, right? Right. right. There's no specific estrogen or testosterone level that is predictive of hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So I could test your hormones all day, but it's not going to tell me that you have hypoactive sexual desire disorder. It's not predictive of that, but yet- so many people are getting their hormones tested. This is one of my pet peeves. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I, that's, I think that's the issue is like clinically your low T might not necessarily mean that you have pain with sex related to hormones or, you know, low libido related to hormones. I think some people get it to kind of monitor. So if you are using testosterone in like a postmenopausal woman, then you can see to make sure that, you know, you're not going excessively. And, and testosterone there's no FDA approved testosterone. So we always have to use either a one-tenth of a male form 
or sometimes I'll get patients to order testosterone from Australia, which has an FDA approved form of uh, testosterone for female testosterone. So those are the two forms. We don't use pellets or any kind of uh, compounding thing, obviously, but I mean, (laughs) I do the same thing. So, so let's back that up and really clarify for those who may be listening that when we're talking about sexual medicine, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, we talked about Addy and Vilesi, and that would be for our pre-menopausal women, right? Right. right. Um, and it just wasn't tested in the postmenopausal. Exactly. The research is coming out, I think. I actually have used it awfully, but I tell patients the only difference between you and them that you just, you know, you don't menstruate anymore. You don't make the estrogen testosterone. Yeah. But, you know, like in theory, if, if they're willing to pay out of pocket for it, or, you know, the rates that you can get at some of the specialty pharmacies, then yeah. I definitely have a handful of patients that are trying it in, in menopause. Yes. Yeah. So, so um, as we go into menopause, though, we obviously have more issues with vasomotor symptoms and yeah. vaginal, you know, those changes that happen to the vagina, you know, the genital urinary symptoms of menopause and the lower testosterone levels. And that's when we can use testosterone for sex issues, correct? Right. Right. Exactly. So I always talk to patients about how like, you know, head to toe, we have estrogen receptors when you kind of have your last ovulating egg out and then a year goes by, you don't menstruate, you go into menopause. Right. So then we talk about, you know, your ovaries making androgens as well. So when you get that decline, a lot of patients will then find even worsening libido. And then if you compound that with, like you said, the genital urinary syndrome or menopause, which Specifically, when you lack estrogen and the vagina starts changing, becomes thinner, becomes shorter, can become drier, can um, make painful elasticity, not as lack lack elasticity, pH rises, all that stuff, leading to lack of normal moisture and normal lactobacillus. Then basically, you do have this issue around you know the pain that some patients have in postmenopause, which we know can, can then also contribute to low desire, and then on top of that this frequent urination is another part of the genital urinary syndrome menopause and you frequent UTIs. So, you know, you have to obviously treat those things, but if you're talking about in isolation, when patients have that treated and they still have these issues, then we can use, you're right, testosterone. And, you know, just like much of what we deal with in the real world, because of the patriarchy, we don't have any female testosterone out there. So there's no FDA approved testosterone for women or for individuals that have uteruses in general. So what we have, what do we have to do in, in sexual medicine is we either have to conjure up a way to treat people, which is using an FDA approved product like a testim or something that comes for men and using a tenth of that because that's you know what's our biologic equivalent. Or there's a there's one FDA approved Australian form of testosterone called Androfeme, which again is at that one tenth level, and you can order it online with a prescription from your doctor. And it gets shipped to you. And I think for some patients, it's cheaper than trying to pay test them out of pocket because again, it's not FDA approved for women. So it becomes an out-of-pocket expense. But some men are on test them. So then I'll tell patients, well, if your husband's on it, just steal a tenth of his and see how it works out. <laughs> so I talk to them how to use it. So then I talk to them how to use it, you know, like on the back of your calf or the back of your leg and rub it in and see how it works out for you. But yeah. And what's the time frame typically for use for testosterone to see if it's going to work? And if it doesn't work, we stop. I think for most patients, you know, they'll see a difference in a few weeks. And 
some patients will be on it for months and not see any difference. So I always say like, you know, the first three months you can get any kind of placebo effect from anything, right? So if it's, if it's something like the first three months and then it tapers off, then I tell them you should just discontinue it. But otherwise within those first few weeks, they should see some difference potentially. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this is a wealth of information and I think that women will find it truly helpful So I just want us to speak to those who are getting testosterone injections or testosterone pellets because we take issue with that. That's not something that the North American Menopause Society recommends. The data is not there for having those super therapeutic levels. We don't know how that's going to affect your cardiovascular health down the road. Would you like to speak to that? Yeah, and that's exactly it. I mean, the issue with a lot of compounding places is that we don't know, there's no standardization in what they're putting into it, right? So like, you know, it's kind of like when people get gummies, right? <laughs> Marijuana gummies. And my patients will be like, oh, well, this one had so much of an effect and the other one had none. So, I mean, it's the same thing. It's not regulated by any, you know, form of uh, government or any form of science. So I think that you don't always know how much is getting put in and therefore you can get those super therapeutic levels which ultimately, you know, can be dangerous. And I think that's the issue with most of this, most societies have with sort of some of these compounding groups. There are some compounding groups that are regulated. I mean, when we use some of the compounding creams for, you know, know, issues around sexual pain and that kind of stuff, uh, you just have to find one that you kind of trust and that have some, you know, regulation to them. But in general, I think the pellets and those kind of things are, you know, can be very dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Well, any last thoughts on sexual medicine? If a patient is listening and thinking, where would I find anybody? Where would I start? You know, we want to make sure that they're getting good quality care. Absolutely. Always look, you know, for, well, I mean, I think you have to, and when when you're looking at this situation, you want to look for people that are, you know, going to follow the research and follow the data, right? Because otherwise there's a lot of hocus pocus out there in sexual medicine too, right? Like you see a lot of stuff that might not have enough data to support it. And therefore, you know, and because none of it is sort of covered by insurance for the most part, then, you know, are they just, you know, trying to make a buck off of you? That's what we always worry about. So I think if you go to the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, which is ishwish, ishwish.org, or there are like find a provider sites. I feel that most people that attend ishwish, you know, they're interested in the science and the latest data and they follow the guidelines that are given by, you know, the, the boards and, and, the, and most of the guidelines are from multiple groups, right? So it'll be like NAMS plus Ishwish plus, so it's a lot of collaboration. Uh, collaboration, exactly. Yeah. So, I think what was most fun about Ishwish was seeing that we had psychiatrists, psychologists, physicians, physical therapists, yeah, physical therapists, like everybody kind of working together on this topic of women's sexual health. And I just think that that's phenomenal and a step in the right direction. So absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us today, Samina. It's been such a pleasure. How we met. (laughs) Oh, how I met you. How I Met Your Podcaster. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I mentioned that you gave a talk at Ishwish and I was like, hey, she looks familiar. And then I realized that you were Gyno Girl on Instagram and we wound up at Rosie's events. So anybody who doesn't know Rosie Rosie is, R-O-S-Y, it's a fabulous app for women's sexual health. Started by the fabulous Lindsay Harper. 
Yes. And uh, we were both at that event. And so I just approached you and we were fast friends. We both. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. And so just kind of hit it off. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what happens when we go to these events and we see other like-minded people that want to do the best for our patients and have a similar background. I think it's great. So I was very grateful that I got to go to that event, you know, meet you and other people as well. So that was our first live event probably since the pandemic, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, we are going to- like your timer's up. <laughs> time is up. Thank you for joining us today on another episode of Sky Women. Until next week, be well. All right, Sky community. Thank you for listening to another episode. This episode was sponsored by Sky Women's Health. As a reminder, we're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and we help relieve back pain and pelvic pain in pregnancy and beyond. If you are pregnant and having pain and you feel like you have no reliable way to relieve it, look us up at skywomenshealth.com, request an appointment, and we'll call to get you scheduled. As a board-certified OB-GYN with a Neuromusculoskeletal Medicine Fellowship, I help you realign with hands-on drug-free treatment and relieve pain on the spot without medication. We'll help you maintain these results through your pregnancy and postpartum period. Every pregnant person deserves this, and we are so excited to serve you. You can find us on our website, as mentioned, or on social at Sky Women's Health, or you can call the office at 817-915-9803. That's it for today. Until next week, be well.